Today on The Black Goat, we're joined by a special guest, Ellen Evers, and we talk about rationality and working at a business school, and a letter about how to deal with a helicopter advisor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with my co-hosts, Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And today we're really excited to have a guest, uh, Ellen Evers. Ellen is an assistant professor. Avers. Avers. There we go. Yeah, oh, it's I Avers. Know that. <laughs> this, is, this is informative. Right off the You're bat. You're already I'm learning something. Screwing everything up. <laughs> Ellen Avers is an assistant professor of marketing at Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. Previously, she received her PhD at Tilburg University in the Netherlands and then did a postdoc at Wharton Business School. Ellen's research is in the area of judgment and decision making, and she also has an interest in research methods. And we're really happy you joined us, Ellen. And I'm sorry about mispronouncing your name. Does that happen to you a lot? Uh, yeah, mostly because I introduce myself as Ellen Evers to the Americans, uh, <laughs> because I assume Avers is just confusing. Um, Wait, so you, you totally set me up. <laughs> no, no. To me, corrected you. I was fine with it. I was just like. <laughs> I've been in the Netherlands like four whole oh, days, so now I, I speak like a Dutch it. person. This is so. So people always confuse me and Alexa. This is going to be even worse because I totally thought that was you, Ellen. That, that yeah. So generally, Samin, I this is a, generally I sound like I'm choking. A, <laughs> like that can help. This is a, especially this is especially hypocritical, Samin, because when we had Anna Alexandrova, I asked her right. how she pronounces her name, and she said Anna, and I then kept you calling were her like, Anna. I call her Anna, <laughs> and you called her Anna through the whole episode. <laughs> She's my friend. I can call her whenever I want. Correcting. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm terrible at saying people's names right. But I feel like it's okay because I have a lot of karmic debt or like indebtedness in that direction because people don't ever say my name right. So, I've Ellen. When does somebody become close enough to a Dutch person that you tell them the real pronunciation of your last name? Like, what if they're a German person? Yeah. No, just the Dutch, (laughs) pretty much. So we're uh, so Samin and Ellen are in Tilburg in the Netherlands right now, and uh, got a lovely background. Some trees; they're on Ellen's deck, um, and uh, yeah, we're just moving locations around left and right. It looks like you're back in Eugene. I'm I'm back in Eugene. Um, I got back two days ago from my sabbatical. Um, yeah, Alexa's still yeah. in in her not for long spot. though. Where are you going to be? Uh, in on July 10th, I go to Croatia, and then Denmark. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, we're all going to be in Croatia. No, you're going to miss spot. her. You're not going to see each other in Croatia. This is going to be boring Wait, for our listeners. Oh, you're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, nobody cares about our summer plans. <laughs> we all just came back from SIPS except for Ellen. We yeah. can talk about SIPS. That's true. Okay. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like a more exciting summer plan to talk about. Where were you, Ellen? Um, I was in Tilburg, getting over jet lag and eating cheese. <laughs> Just what you do in Tilburg. Huh. What I'm did you guys? Envious. What did you guys think of Sips this year? I thought uh, I was asked by the videographer this question at the end, and I was very awkward about answering it. And I fear that that's going to happen again. So maybe I'll <laughs> pass it on to you, Sanjay. <laughs> yeah, I um, I thought it was good. You know, it's really interesting to see the organization growing. 
um, to see, you know, I think Katie Corker tweeted that it was something like 90, or no, not, what am I saying, 90, 65% like first time mm-hmm. attendees. Um, and so that was really cool. And I was uh, really excited to hear about what everyone else was working on. I kind of like the stuff that I went to, like the, the thing I went to on the first day was really cool. It was a, a teaching hackathon. And then I kind of like floated in and out of stuff, um, which is what you're supposed to do at SIPs. But I realized I think I would have gotten more out of it if I had like sort of gone all in and worked on mm-hmm. something. Um, and so I kind of had, but it, but it was uh, what I ended up doing was like hanging out and meeting people, which, uh, which was cool. So I didn't get as much done sort of like project wise as I think some people do. But uh, it was it was really cool. I met a bunch of people for the first time who some of whom I knew from social media, some of whom I just literally met cold for the first time, which is like yeah. a rarer and rarer thing, especially at SIPs, right? Because everyone's on social media. So I so spent a lot of my time in the lightning talks, which felt kind of lame because it's like the most traditional part of the SIPs conference. But I had so much fun there. And also, like, as much as I sh- this sounds hypocritical, like I don't really like working in large groups. <laughs> so I like I, w- I was part of a hackathon and I did contribute, <laughs> but like I went in and out a lot. Um, and I was thinking like SIPs, the basic idea was let's take a bunch of really bullheaded particular people and make them work together. But somehow it works, at least for most people, which is kind of interesting. I mean, Alexa, as as probably one of the most bullheaded people I know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> yeah, working in groups is terrible, you know? It's just like nobody wants to do it the way that I want to do it. And I have to yell at people. Um, I think my takeaway from SIPs this time was that it's like it's it's pretty much like summer camp for nerds. Like you get to know people so quickly because you're instead of just like sitting next to them in a room, you're like working with them on stuff. And um, and yeah, I mean, so we did the introductions thing for the third year in a row. Um, and this time. So how many people were at SIPs this year? 280, I think. Registered. Something oh, wow. like that. Yeah. So it took ooh, 45 minutes to an hour to do these introductions because every person does an individual introduction where they say their name and um, some reason why they're there. And like I was shocked at how interesting that remained the entire time um i think because the people who go are cool and funny yeah there were three stand-up comedians or something (laughs) three three uh yeah three three self-declared stand-up comedians who knows how many others there were lurking they they made their presence did you get many people um that don't work in the classic academia sense not a lot i think there were maybe a few a yeah. handful and there were there were one or two there were a few journalists and maybe one or two people who work in industry uh, that i know of but most the vast majority are in academia yeah yeah mm-hmm. so ellen i think i think you and i met for the first time at the first sips yeah that's Was correct that right? uh yeah i'm not sure if, i think we were actually in the same project team possibly <laughs> I, were, yeah, was that the, the job market session? Oh, no. I was in the um, study swap session, I think. Okay, okay. Then then I guess we weren't. That's but, good, um, because then maybe you don't yeah, hate me but, yet. But that was... That... <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, yeah, but you... So, so you weren't at SIPS this year. Were you... You're not super on social media. I don't even remember. Do you have a Twitter account? Yeah, I do. I just... Um... I usually say really impulsive stuff, and I'm, I regret it later, so I try to limit my social media interactions a, lot, a bit. A podcast is the perfect <laughs> yeah. format for you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, 
I just tend to get really, really upset about stuff people say on the internet, and then <laughs> only a day later I realize that it's just a rando on the internet and I shouldn't care so much about it, so I try to control my emotions by just not engaging that much um, in public. <laughs> that, that is... That is such a sane, healthy attitude, because I'm impulsive on Twitter, but I don't stop myself. I do feel like I'm missing out, though, um, because the only thing I can do is like open a chat, wi chat window with Samin and like <laughs> type a really angry message to Samin, uh, but that's about it. <laughs> I think a lot of people do that. I mean, not with me particularly, although. So, Alan, you were at the first sips, but you, you weren't back. I'm, I'm curious what you think of like the the direction it's going and and like i don't know how much you hear about it on social media or other ways uh so i would say abstractly i'm super happy this is happening um i think like social psych but also most of the related fields um could really be improved and i'm really happy there's a large group of people um trying to improve it and i'm super happy that there is a community where people find support in trying to improve it i'm just not sure if the format fits my like idiosyncratic preferences, uh, because even though I have like pretty strong opinions about methodology and what is good and bad science, I don't actually do any work in that domain. And then like the the work groups don't necessarily fit with what I would like to do. Like I like to have discussions with people and hear what other people are doing, but I don't necessarily want to create new stuff that much. Oh, that sounds terrible, but. <laughs> um, yeah, like the, the, the science I like doing personally is like, you know, like more the classic style of figuring out how stuff works more than meta science. So um, in general, I'm super happy the conference is there. And if it isn't super far away in Grand Rapids, I'll definitely come by again. But if it's difficult to come, I'm not sure if it's the best conference for me to go to. Mm -hmm. So when, when you say that you, that it kind of doesn't fit your style, is it that you is it the sort of the working in groups with other people part of it or is it more the like you just uh you're you're not interested in like the sort of the meta science stuff um both a little bit i think i'm a difficult person uh, <laughs> so that's the group word. um but also like i'm interested in meta science when uh, uh when i can read about it or like chat about it or mostly when other people are doing it but i mean <laughs> there is an opportunity well cost. then sips is perfect you can watch lots of other people doing it it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah not true but i mean there is an opportunity cost <laughs> and i don't think easy. like you know when i went to sips all these great ideas started emerging but then there is still work to do after sips and then you can only spend your time one way or the other and then you know when you come back to campus and you're like oh man there is this like weird phenomena i'm trying to figure out but i also feel like i should work on this other thing that's where i felt some tension and um because you were pretty integral to the development of study swap at the beginning right um mm. i don't think inter like i mentioned it because uh people didn't uh i thought it would be helpful if other people could run your studies because it would be <laughs> a clear signal that it's true like yeah, there is yeah. no way to p-hack stuff if other people are doing it for you yeah. um so yeah yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that's a really good point that, you know, the people talk at SIPS about like the 80-20 rule that like 20% mm -hmm. of your time is spent getting 80% of the way there. But then to have something that other people can actually use, somebody has to do that mm -hmm. last 20%. And, you know, I think the, like some, some things that have come out of SIPS, people have really picked up and taken 
that last 20%, like StudySwap or, or SciArchive or other things. You know, it's interesting that I, um, I feel like there's kind of a, a norm that it's okay to like not, like if you, if you leave SIPs and, and you don't want to continue working on something, there, it seems like there's kind of an, a norm that that's okay. But it's it's like it it's this weird thing that it needs to be an unspoken mm-hmm. norm because if if you say that out loud yeah, right, too right. much, then people yeah, just want to walk oh, away. And from it can so like feel wrong right. on a so personal it, level, right? Like you're there for two days, you're being a difficult person, and you're dis- you're disagreeable, and you think you know the best way to do it, and then as soon as SIPS is over, you don't respond to emails anymore. Like even <laughs> if that's okay according to the norms, I would still feel like a terrible right. person. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny, like on the first day when I was talking about the structure of the SIPS conference, I like made a joke about how it's not the society for talking about the improvement of psychological science. And I mean, I sort of said that in like a critical way, but I think like sometimes it is really fun to just like talk about things. And I think at a typical conference, what people are usually getting out of going to conferences is like not that they're getting any concrete work done. It's that they're sort of like, having interesting conversations and sparking ideas and stuff like that. I think that happens at SIPS too, but I think like there is definitely much more of a focus on making tangible progress and not just sort of like having our heads in the cloud, which, yeah, I mean, that's the point, but I like having my, heads, my head in <laughs> the cloud. We can have a certain proportion too. of freeloaders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this one, this year's SIPS felt like, yeah, well, it, it felt it felt like a better balance to me because I, I ended up in, in that sense, although, you know, like I was saying before, I ended up not doing as much like working on stuff. But the last day I ended up spending quite a bit of the afternoon kind of like in the sort of lobby area. And there was like a bunch of people sitting around chatting and it was people that I some I hadn't met before this sip, some I'd only met briefly. And, and that was kind of cool. Like there were a bunch of people, really interesting people I spent a lot of time talking with. And I remember at the first one, you know, the the, the one you were at, Alan, like, you know, you remember Brian, Brian Nosek was kind of like running the schedule. And it was like, you know, from eight o'clock in the morning until like three minutes before dinner time. And it was like, you know, so and, and you know, Katie Corker was joking that, you know, she asked, like, can we have a bathroom break? And Brian was like, you can just go to the bathroom when you need to and come back and keep working. And, you know, like, you know, can we have lunch? You know, oh, you know, we have IVs outside. We'll just plug them in and keep going. You know, it's like <laughs> not really, Brian. But uh, yeah, I also think that what, oh, when I went to the first one, I also there were a few people that I didn't know yet. And I was hoping to, like, meet them and chat with them. And that didn't really happen. So I think that may have also, like, colored my judgment a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe maybe we'll tempt you back next time because it's going to be in Rotterdam in 2019. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'll definitely come. Like, unless something super weird happens, I'm planning to come. It will be fun. Okay, cool. And you don't have cool. to work the whole time. <laughs> I'll have some secret breaks where I just check yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, should we move on and, and do our letter? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay. So our letter begins, Dear the Black Goat, I'm an early career researcher and I write to you with some concerns about my current working relationship with my academic advisor. We have had two R&Rs lately, which have been the cause of some strife. I have first authored both, and one came from my dissertation. How can I put this any other way? We don't see eye to eye on writing and revising. Basically, I revise according to what I think the reviewers are asking. He gets upset about me changing too much, changes it back, and then I get upset because I did all that work and we are back to square one. This has happened a few times. The major disadvantage to this is not necessarily external, because a pub is a pub. 
However, I feel internally conflicted because it says I am first author, but most of the revising takes out, takes out my original content. I am preparing another first author manuscript and I feel like it's going to happen again. I can admit that revising for me is tricky and is likely tricky, tricky for many early career inexperienced scholars, but at some point you gotta fly the nest. My big question is, what are some effective ways to handle leaving the shadow of your advisor? I believe I am ready to strike out on my own, though my advisor may think differently. Best upbeat junior faculty member. So Sanjay, you were saying that you can maybe identify with this a little bit? Yeah, I, you know, when I saw this letter, it, it reminded me of, you know, and I, my experience was not, I wouldn't say as negative as this letter writer is sounding, but, you know, when I was first starting out as an assistant professor, I was still working on some stuff, and, and actually I had a collaborative project with my postdoc advisor and one of my grad school advisors, so it was like the three of us, um, plus a couple other people, but we were kind of the main, the main ones working on it, and... You know, I remember really like noticing, and I was first author on this, and and you know the, and I remember really noticing kind of the power dynamics of it because, on the one hand, they were more experienced than me; they were my, you know, had been formally my advisors and were still my mentors, um, and you know, but we would have disagreements about stuff, and I, I have this like <laughs> this one particular like pseudo traumatic memory, which I don't blame them for too much <laughs> but I you know we we were having this big so there were a lot of things where like we would have a meeting and we'd be talking about stuff and then it would kind of end with like one of them going Sanjay go do this thing and it, in a way that felt more like I was like the grad student like junior person than the first author um, and that was kind of you know some of that was just sort of inevitable but I, I remember I was on a vacation I was on like a two-week vacation um, this was like a you know maybe a year or two after I'd started my job, um, and I made the mistake of checking my email halfway through the vacation, and there mm -hmm. was the and we had been having this big. There was like two different ways that we were going back and forth about how to frame the paper um, that required like major rewrites to get from one to the other, and and we had like committed to one of these two framings, and like halfway through my vacation, I like stopped in an internet cafe you know this was back before like people had smartphones with them or whatever i stopped in an internet cafe checked my email and there's this email from one of them saying you know we we were talking and uh you know we hope you're enjoying your vacation and <laughs> and you know leaving this here for you to read when you get back um but we were talking and uh you know we decided that um it's better to reframe it this other way so when you get back could you do that and you know it's gonna be a lot of work and it also been yeah. like we had kind of committed and I, I literally lost a whole day of my vacation just like angry ruminating over this mm -hmm. and um and I, you know this my advisors were really supportive people this was not like a exploitative like jerky thing to do this was like you know it reminds me a bit of like you know, parent-child dynamics in a in a weird way. Like you know, when kids grow up and their parents have to like stop telling them what to do and and transition to treating them like peers, and and kids have to transition to being treated like peers and acting like grown-ups. Um, and you see a lot of like, you know, like forty-five-year-olds and their seventy-year-old parents who are still bickering like you know a teenager with their mom and dad and whatever. And I think some of these things remain because you get into these habits of, of working with people where, 
you know, when you're someone's formal supervisor, you treat them a certain way. And so I, I yeah, so that I totally empathize with the position that this letter writer is in because they're essentially, they're the first author. They, by every, like, nominal sense, they are in charge and should be in charge. And it sounds like their their advisor is interacting with them still like an advisor and not like a second author. Yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, position of the letter writer makes a big difference. So they're a junior faculty member. And I do think at that point, um, the dynamic has to shift at, uh, like, has to shift, especially, you know, if somebody is first author. Um, as I'm reading this, I'm sort of like identifying maybe more with a heavy-handed advisor because I think <laughs> I think I'm a pretty heavy-handed editor with my grad student stuff. And so I haven't really been in the position yet to have like a grad student who is now a junior faculty member who is submitting papers and I'm editing them still. And I wonder how hard it's going to be for me to like pull back and say like, okay, like, you want to you want to write it I mean, that way. You want to write it that way. Arguably, you shouldn't even be a co-author on your paper, your former students' papers at that point. I mean, there there are cases where that makes sense, but I think th- it sounds like this is going to be the third paper where the former advisor is going to be a co-author. Like at some point, like let them write up, even if they collected the data in your lab and so on. Like, I feel like that's depends uh, on how much interaction there is yeah. to this point. Um, but you can set it up so that you give them a lot of freedom pretty early on in the projects like so that you know when they're starting to leave when they're still in grad school but they're getting ready to leave you say okay well these projects I'm gonna let you do on your own but it's true if they've had a lot of influence and input then they need to be an author but they that could have been different um I find it pretty difficult to evaluate this letter because it's fairly abstract in describing what happened. Um, I think it's pretty easy to be devil's advocate, or you can easily be devil's advocate and say, hey, sometimes reviewers will ask people to make changes that you may not necessarily agree with, like maybe drop some DVs or whatever. In that case, I think um, the advisor is completely right to say maybe we shouldn't do what the reviewers are asking for. Oh, I see. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was reading this assuming that the first author was endorsing the changes he or she was making, not just because the reviewers asked, but it's true that if there, there is also a truth of the matter of like, there might be, it might not just be a matter of opinion, there might be a truth of the matter of which changes are better, the ones that the first author wants to make or the ones that their former advisor wants to make. But I think so... I'm going to argue in the opposite direction and say that you guys aren't going far enough in <laughs> saying the advisor's wrong, because I would say even when the first author is still a graduate student, first author is first author, and they need to get a lot of say in the framing of the paper and the decisions about the paper, and I think ultimately the first author should get the final say, but it's true that when I'm the advisor and the first author is a graduate student, especially an early year grad student, I'm going to push much, much harder. I'm going to keep arguing for much longer than I would if I was non-first author and the first author had more experience or I wasn't their mentor but still like now I don't know that I was always this way as an advisor but now I try to not insist on a change if the first author like I'll I'll argue for a long long time I think my god students can tell you that but I don't want them to do something that I haven't convinced them they should do yeah I would agree so yeah I think I think my approach is generally like if I think something is really important, I'll push back for a while. But if one of my grad students is a first author, ultimately I let them have the final say. Another thing that could be like relevant to the conflict here is how this discussion is happening. Like I think sometimes having discussions via um, via edits can be like a pretty frustrating way yeah. to you yeah. know revise a paper. Like 
I know that I'll do like so actually one thing that I used to hate about what my advisors revisions to my papers would be like <laughs> he would like notice a thing and then he would like get progressively more frustrated with that thing as he gave me feedback throughout the paper yeah, like right. he'd be like you're doing this again and yeah. like, <laughs> I haven't read your comments in between yeah. when you wrote the first one and the second one <laughs> yeah yeah I try to avoid that but it's all, it's really hard to be like also here and here again and also here yeah. and you did it again <laughs> like, I'm trying to be like I know you haven't seen my comments yet but so, so I'm still very un- junior so I don't have a lot of advising experience but what my advisors used to do with me and I try to do now as well is you know like there are some disagreements and they will kind of remain so when we believe the paper is very close to being done we just sit down for one or two hours and we just like finish it and it's so much easier to hash disagreements out face to face and like half of the time you also realize that whatever it is you're disagreeing about it's not a big deal and it doesn't really matter and maybe also having that big picture conversation at the beginning, especially in a revision, like sitting down before you start making the revisions and talking big picture, how much do we want to refer in the paper? Are we, what, what do we agree with? What do we not? How much are we willing to change it? Um, so yeah, like to try to give an answer to the letter writer, I would say try to have those big picture conversations and including not just like about this specific paper, but about authorship and how decisions should be made among co-authors. What does first author mean? Does the fact that one person is a former mentor of the other influence who has more say and so on? Those might be that meta conversation might help, mm-hmm. but at least a, a big picture conversation about the specific paper, I think, is likely to help. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, that, also. Oh, oh Go ahead, yeah. Sorry. So so I think often when people are having interpersonal difficulties, whether it's in like close relationships or professional relationships or whatever, like. The sort of obvious thing of just stepping back and naming what's going on and saying let's talk about it doesn't occur to people because you're like caught up and so so I think a lot of um, like I think there's a lot that you can do to change the process like like you guys have talked about like instead of trading track changes on drafts you know have a meeting or or you know ask them to send you comments separate from the paper or pro- probably I wouldn't do that in this specific case because it's sort of beyond that but like um, yeah, I think saying like, let's get together physically in the same place and finish this is really good. But then I think also, yeah, just like, you know, both for the sake of this paper, but also for the sake of your ongoing relationship, just, you know, schedule, a, if you're in different places, schedule a phone call or, or a, some, a meeting if you can or whatever. Um, not specifically about the paper per se, but but just say like, here's what's going on from my perspective. And I'd like to, to you know, I, I'm... I'm now, you know, a faculty member. I'm an independent researcher. I'm also first author on this paper. Um, I, I value your input, but I'm getting frustrated with our process, and uh, um, I feel like we need to be trying to persuade each other and justify our choices. But also, that as first author, I have to have final say. Um, like just to to sort of say that out loud to the person, and obviously, like much depends on who the advisor is and and your relationship with them. But but that's kind of like the you know to go back to the analogy of like the kid and their parents. It's like acting like a grown up, like just saying plainly, like you know, I I'm in this role now. I, I'm first author, and I'm no longer your advisee, mm-hmm. and and these are my expectations for a collaboration. Just like you would with any other collaboration, you you lay out expectations usually at the start, but you often revisit those along the way anyway. Um, I also yeah. think one way to more globally, like how do you leave the shadow of your advisor? Just looking back at my, you know, like 
what I did, I think it really helped me to work with a bunch of different people besides just my advisor. Um, because it kind of gives you confidence, it also teaches you that there is no one perfect way to do it and you don't have to emulate your advisor. It also shows you that, you know, like people have different opinions and attitudes and it's not that one is wrong or the other one is right per se. Um, and I think I felt more confident in arguing with my advisor because I also had, you know, argued with other people about these kind of things. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Cool. Well, I hope we've helped uh, helped our letter writer. I, I feel like so, sometimes we get to the end of the letter and I'm just like, okay, good luck. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I, feel like, I feel like this was like solid. This is like some, some really good concrete advice. Like don't trade, track changes, have a meeting, blah, blah, blah. So, And don't always cool. listen to reviewers. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, good God. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all. Yeah, right. right. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, uh, upbeat junior faculty member, for your letter. And for people listening, if you have a letter you'd like us to read and respond to, you can email us letters at theblackgoodpodcast.com. You can also, that doesn't have to be for a letter for us to read on the podcast. We love to just hear from people. We get lots of great feedback um, about things or people's thoughts about things or, or what have you. Um, let me just uh, throw in here, Sanjay, that um, I've I've heard from a few people that they think that we're totally overwhelmed with letters and thus they shouldn't bother us with their letters. But you should bother us with your letters. We but we them. are oh. totally overwhelmed and that's why we don't always write back very quickly. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> we're just no, overwhelmed yeah, with no, other that's things. Totally true. Not with this. We we love we love to get uh, letters and, and yeah, don't don't hold back and, and if there's a delay it's because the email address forwards to our three individual email addresses and there's this diffusion of responsibility thing that happens. Because we're all individually <laughs> great at responding to emails <laughs> just when it goes to the three of us. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, speaking, I I'm making fun I of myself. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm like, Alexa is going to respond to this, isn't she? I'm just going to wait and let her respond. Um, but yeah, no, please, please do email us and don't, don't hold back. Um, and you can also interact with us, uh, give us feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter is at BlackGoatPod on Facebook, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We have an Instagram now where on in, our Instagram account is BlackGoatPod. And um, you can also, uh, if you subscribe to us on iTunes and if you rate us on iTunes, that helps other people find us. And so that's another thing that you can do if you like the podcast. Or if you hate us, give us a one-star review. Um, or better yet, don't say anything on iTunes and just tell us. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, uh, for the main segment, uh, we are really happy to have Ellen Avers here joining us. Um, uh, Ellen, as I said at the start, is at Wharton Business School. And Ellen, no, not, not, not anymore. <laughs> no, no. You said it correctly at the I got those business schools. She was at Wharton. Now she's at Haas Business School. Thank you. Um, uh, Samin's just, I, I just, I was setting that up to, <laughs> to see if you would still correct me. Um, no, Ellen's at, at Haas Business School. And Ellen, your training was not at a business school, right? You moved into that. You were trained. Were you, was your degree program in social psychology or what? Yeah, what so um, I did my PhD in Tilburg where I think officially it was part of social and personality maybe. Um Sorry, I think social and behavioral science. Um, but in general, it was a social psych uh, degree. And did you, 
At what point did you start thinking about going to business schools? Was that something you wanted from the get-go? Was that something that kind of happened on the job Yeah, market? no, I'm, I'm maybe like a super terrible um, person to ask these questions where um, I was just doing um, my PhD degree. Um, I'm generally really interested in decision-making, how people choose between different options. So already, you know, during my psych degree, I used a lot of choices between products uh, to kind of make it like something people actually should care about rather than geometric shapes. Um, and in the Netherlands, a PhD is pretty short. And when I was about to defend, I felt that I wasn't ready yet to apply for an assistant professor job uh, because I would be afraid that most of my time would go into teaching in the beginning and then I would just fall behind and I had all these papers I wanted to write. Um, so I was just looking for a postdoc and kind of, I don't want to say by accident, but I just ended up um, being able to do a postdoc um, at Wharton with Yuri Simonson and Joe Simmons, uh, which sounded amazing. Um, so I went there, um, but not with a pre-planned idea of wanting to go to a business school or anything like that. It kind of just happened naturally because a lot of the decision-making people are in business schools in the US. Um, so that's how I ended up there. Um, and then I needed to start applying for jobs and basically the Haas job came by and I thought it looked amazing. So I decided to apply on it. Um, I think mostly to get a feel what it's like to be on the job market and uh, it turned out very successful. Uh, so I went there. Sorry, that was a bit of a rambling description, <laughs> no, but no, it's no. also how I experienced it. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Mm -hmm. That's great. I, I mean, you, you said you, you sort of said half jokingly, I think that you're a bad person to ask, but I, 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 you know, everyone's paths are often more idiosyncratic than we kind of assume in the aggregate. And so mm -hmm. I think it's really like, yeah, I think that's really interesting um, to, to hear how, how you got there. I, I think in part because like for a lot of people in other areas of psychology, um, social and personality, certainly, but cognitive, uh, other, other kinds of things, IO, you know, business schools are one mm -hmm. possible career path and and you know a lot of times if you're in a psychology department um, you don't necessarily know how it's going to be similar or how it's going to be different unless you happen to you know some people have like connections or close collaborations but a lot of times for a lot of people where it's a viable option they don't actually know all that much about it at, yeah. at the start I'm curious yeah like, like looking back I Oh, sorry. No, you got uh, it. Looking back, I think I should have applied to business schools, like in a very strategic way, because I do think I fit well in a business school. I was just never aware that it was an option. So I, I wasn't trying to be dismissive. Like, I, I think it would have been much better if I knew beforehand and I actually would have actively tried to go there. And I think I just got lucky that I ended up there anyway. I was going to ask you, so, I mean, so you went to graduate school in a social personality area and then now you work in a business school. Like, do you, do you have a sense of what the differences between the two are and what you would prefer and not prefer about being in a business um, school? Generally, yes. But keep in mind that I'm comparing a psych program in Europe with yeah. like, you know, a business school in the right. US. So it's difficult to know what to attribute to business school versus psych, what to attribute to America versus Netherlands, what to attribute to students at Haas versus students at Tilburg. Um, yeah. And also keep in mind that Haas is kind of a weird business school, I think. Okay. Like if you would, like, I think we're pretty much on the extreme if you would just plot all the business schools where we're a pu public business school, uh, which is different than most of the other business schools. Mm -hmm. um, I think 
for me, it's much easier to uh, like get research funds and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's an upside. Um, one big difference is that we generally have way fewer grad students than psych departments, which mm-hmm. you could argue is an upside, uh, could also be a downside. Um, teaching is very different. My students are way more likely to ask, how do I apply this? What are the practical implications? How is Uber doing this? Um, stuff like that. Um, at the same time, the students seem more intense mm-hmm. in a good way and maybe like in a demandy way, but I think both make a lot of sense where their tuition is 22, 22 times higher than what the Dutch students were paying. Um, so, you know, they expect more from you, um, but they're also working harder for it and they have like clear goals and that's why they're there. Um, so I know some people find that difficult, but at the same time, I really, really like it because, you know, like you have a captive audience and when they don't believe what you're saying, they will critically question you. But I like that way more than like feeling like you're talking to a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big difference. I think being a psychologist in marketing, um, there is always the question whether you're marketing enough. Um, and that can be rough. Um, I think the only thing I can do is show that whatever I do is relevant for marketing. Um, mm-hmm. But I think those are like globally the biggest differences. Uh-huh. Is there a particular kind of person who you would say should should especially consider business schools or a particular kind of person, let's say within social personality psych, job candidate, people about to go in the job market, who should really consider it and who should maybe don't, don't even bother? Um, this may be a bit too easy to say because like the job market is rough, but I wouldn't immediately consider it if you feel like you have to sacrifice some kind of research value to make the switch. Like if you have to desperately try to fit your own personal interest into like a weird framework to make it businessy enough, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Um, in my case, it was fairly easy to translate the questions I'm really interested in to a marketing domain. So I never felt like I had to, like I never felt that I was forced to do something different than what I wanted to do. Um, so that's an easy switch to make. Um, I'm not sure if you'll be happy doing stuff you don't actually want to do just to fit in. Mm-hmm. That's probably mm-hmm. generally good advice. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it's easy to say, like I know the side yeah, job yeah, market yeah. is really, really rough. So maybe you, your life will be better to give up some of it. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you feel, you know, something that I think people sometimes wonder about, about going into business schools is if they're coming from a different discipline like psychology, is staying connection, staying connected to their discipline of origin mm-hmm. like uh the, you know if you were a social personality psychology and that feels like your intellectual sorry i can't speak today <laughs> if you were a social personality psychologist and that feels like your sort of scholarly intellectual community or your cognitive psychologist or your whatever else um you know hanging on to that identity that sort of sense of who you are professionally but then also the mm-hmm. that s- sense of a community have you i i guess what maybe i I don't know how much that is a concern for you, like how much you identify, but then also sort of like, how has it been hanging on to that if, if that's something that you wanted to do? So, so I think my general research interests are, are really in judgment and decision making, like how people form preferences, how they choose between different options. Um, and when I did my PhD in social psych, 
I think some others saw me as an outsider because I didn't do the typical social psychology. You know, I would have a two-condition design where people make a single choice and they'll be like, oh, did you measure mm-hmm. these five skills and see if it moderates or mediates? So mm-hmm. I think I was kind of a weird social psychologist already. Uh, so maybe now I'm a little bit of a weird marketing person. Um, the upside is that there is the, like, I'm part of a pretty big group of people who do judgment and decision-making research. There's only maybe two universities, I think, who have a dedicated department doing that. And in all the other schools, these people are spread between psych, econ, marketing, management. So um, when I was in social psych, I already felt more connected to that group. And now I'm in marketing, it's still easy to connect to that group because it's like the baseline isn't that everybody comes from a similar department. The baseline is already that it's like a mix of people from different um, areas. Mm-hmm. One thing that I wanted to ask you, partly because of your um, interest in JDM, is so I guess I'm assuming that you know uh, part of JDM is determining whether people are making uh, decisions that are reasonable or or rational. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if. Um, if it makes sense to talk about whether like an individual person is a rational person. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also curious about that question like generally, because I think like, oh. I don't know, I was thinking about this before the episode and I think like Samin, I think of you as like a very rational person. And then I was like, <laughs> actually maybe I think of Sanjay also as a very rational person. And as far as I know, Ellen, like I have never seen you do something that I think is very irrational. Uh-huh. Um, I- is this like she a thinks that type? opening the door helps us get a better <laughs> Wi-Fi signal, so I don't know. Hey, it seems to be working uh, every 12 and a half minutes. Um, <laughs> Super I, rational, Alan. So I'm, I'm just kidding. So I, I have difficulties with the concept of rationality, where I feel like maybe, like especially in judgment and decision pe- making, judgment and decision making, people like to show a behavior that on the face of it looks like suboptimal and then they'll, they'll be like haha people are so irrational yeah um but it really depends right. on how you define rationality and i try to mm-hmm. never even use the word rationality or irrationality um mm-hmm. where within judgment and decision making mostly what we try to see is do people seem to violate their own um, preferences. So if you like okay. one thing more than the other thing, then you should choose that thing over the other thing. Okay. Um, and if you're inconsistent in that, then we usually say people are behaving non-normative. But non-normative doesn't necessarily mean irrational. Okay. Like if I go to the supermarket because I want to buy tea, I can make an optimal decision if I read like all the ingredients, if I compare all the prices, if I then recalculate how much the price is per cup of tea. Yeah. And then I can spend half an hour in front of all the teas and choose the best tea. But it's super dysfunctional yes. in the long run. Like I shouldn't waste mm-hmm. half an hour of my time just to buy tea. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, I think, where a lot of stuff that we claim is irrational kind of goes wrong, where it may seem inconsistent or kind of suboptimal in the moment. But, you know, over a lifetime, it's a pretty good way to approach the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't call those behaviors irrational. Do you care about, like, as an ultimate research goal, do you care about, like, imp- making people's behavior more optimal or more in line with their preferences? Or or are you just, like, curious about the process? Um, it, I think it would be good to make people's behavior more optimal, but I think the risk is defining what is optimal. Um, where, mm-hmm. like, 
Is me eating chocolate ice cream tonight, even though I have trouble fitting in my pants, is that suboptimal? I don't know. You know, the ice cream makes me really, really happy. Like, what, what is optimal? And I think yeah. we run the risk sure, to yeah. define something as optimal because we believe it is the optimal thing, but it's not necessarily the optimal sure. thing. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. and I think that's where we run into issues because like a good baseline would be like, oh, we should just like let every individual define for themselves what is optimal. But then if behavior is inconsistent, then we cannot even rely on people's own. Uh-huh. Like we cannot even rely on the individual's behavior to tell us what is optimal for that individual because they're inconsistent across the board. Uh, so yeah, it's mm-hmm. really tricky. Uh, so that's why I try to stay away from those kind of terms because I'm not sure we actually know what is rational or what is optimal mm-hmm. for each individual. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that I, so I've, you know, I think the economics tradition of rationality is, you know, an economist will come up with a normative model mm-hmm. of how, you know, what, what people are supposed to be doing. And then rationality is defined often in economics as the behavior conforms to what the rational model says it should or not, mm-hmm. and that it's irrational. I think a sort of everyday folk definition of rationality is kind of what what uh, you know you were alluding to before, and right. what Alexa was alluding to, where it's, I think, as individuals psychologically, we think we're being rational when we're engaged in a process of conscious reasoning things mm-hmm. out. And I think psychology, academic psychology, sometimes does one, sometimes does the other. So like JDM tends to be sometimes more close to that economics model. And I think there's kind of pros and cons. And, and then other parts of, of psychology tend to be more of the folk model because they're interested in people's experiences and, and sort of the phenomenology of being mm-hmm. rational. And and I think the, you know, um, like I think you're you're doing one thing which I, th- I, I am more uh, impressed by, which is sort of being reluctant to use the word rationality because of these different mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you'll see like econ papers where they'll say something like, you know, smoking is rational and and you can tell that like or you know it'll be something something that sounds like that i don't know if that's literally (laughs) one but but you know and then the the paper will be about how like under certain conditions like smoking conforms to some you know preference model blah 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 whatever but you can tell that the person that wrote that fucking paper Mm -hmm. knew that they were going to get people's attention by like contrasting their like weird obscure academic yeah. definition of rationality with like what people you know normally normally do so there, there's a way that like you know people will will i think sort of like play and and it can be playful but it can also be a little bit like clickbaity like mm-hmm. play yeah. with the word rationality in in these these two different senses to to sort of like yeah. you know kind of get uh, attention yeah and i work. think maybe uh-huh. part of it is also that I, i'm not sure how it is in the u.s but it, definitely in the netherlands a lot of policy is made based on the idea that people like on an even simpler idea of rationality which is that people want to have the optimal outcome and are able to determine what the optimal outcome is Um, so i think that also leads to some of the research just showing that people can be suboptimal in the moment you know that that it is a big deal because as long as policymakers rely on these super simplistic models of how humans make decisions then they're going to like uh, intervene in society in like the wrong way. Uh, so I think that also plays a part of why we sometimes use this simplistic idea of rationality. Yeah, so for example, like a couple of years ago, the Dutch government decided that instead of like having national healthcare, they should just 
uh, open up the market and give the opportunity for multiple healthcare providers to offer packages. And then because humans really care about their health and their money, everybody would choose the optimal one. And then some economists did the calculations and they found out that 80% should have switched healthcare provider, but only like 3% did. Um, Mm-hmm. To which I think most psychologists would say, like, yeah, sure, we know that, you know, people are not that optimal decision makers. Um, and you could argue, like, ha, 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 you know, it's another one where it's people are not rational in the obvious way. Uh, but I still think it's important to do it because, you know, like, clearly if governments are using that idea to create interventions, then they should be aware that people are not optimal decision makers at every point in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the importance of defaults seems to be a really important insight from that yeah. literature. Yeah, and it's I don't think world's shocking. Yeah, right. I think if you yeah, would ask right. 50 people on the street, like, hey, how do defaults work? They would say, like, yeah, I'm too lazy to change my answer. <laughs> right. But it's still, like, it doesn't mean it's not a big deal for... Yeah, but I think right. even though, like, it's still hard for me to accept that I wouldn't do any research on my health plan, but I know from having changed jobs and blah, 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 that I don't do any research yeah. on my health plan. So, yeah. But it's even with that experience, it's really hard to accept it about ourselves. Yeah. Um, going back to Alexa's point about like, well, actually, when you like were saying that you think of us as especially rational people, yeah. I've always like been extremely averse to people self-ascribing rationality. Like it's one uh-huh. of those like self-report items that I would never trust. And if anything, I would interpret right. in the opposite direction. And in fact, uh, this one personality measure, the California adult Q sort, one of the items, it's an observer report measure. So it's not a self-report. It's used to rate others. But one of the items is this person prides him or herself on being rational. And I was like, yes, that's the <laughs> item I was looking for. Not they're, they're rational or not rational. Do they pride themselves on being yeah. rational? That's the annoying trait. <laughs> well, well, I used to annoy it. Like, I, I share the intuition, and maybe yeah. it's because of all the internet atheists of 10 years ago. But, um, <laughs> like, why is it bad to... Okay, so priding on rationality sounds bad. But if you're saying, like, hey, when I need to make important decisions or, like think about what I believe. I like to go I about think, it in a systematic way. That seems like I a think part of it is thing. a difference yeah. between privately believing that about yourself and publicly proclaiming it, which gets into a whole issue about self-reports and what we're asking people to do when they do self-reports. Yeah. So I would but but in I'm thinking of like in college, the people who went around talking about how rational they are, right? Like yeah. I don't yeah. mind if someone privately thinks of themselves as pretty rational. But like, who, if they don't get what it sounds like, right? Because to me, like yeah. one of the number one goals of being rational is to not be defensive and to not be a hypocrite or reduce, like minimize how much you mm-hmm. seem like a hypocrite or seem defensive. And saying that you're rational, like sounds defensive and automatically makes you a hypocrite. And so it's like proof that you're bad at those things, which should be like important to someone who wants to be rational. Maybe we're getting too yeah. nitpicky at this point. Basically, you're saying don't brag. <laughs> if I were to do the Q sort on you, Simeon, I don't know if you're offended by this, but I would definitely rate you high on pride yourself for being rational. <laughs> but I wouldn't rate That's you high That's because you know all my innermost thoughts, but hopefully someone who knows me less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, you're just you're too much in my head. That's the problem. I hope someone who doesn't get to hear as many of my inner monologues as you do, hopefully, would put that a little bit lower than you would. I don't know. Well, I think I think it's the 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 yeah the prides. Like Alexa knows Samin and well enough to know kind of her internal views. But I, I think the more the even more explicit version of that is like signals your rationality. That's really yeah, where right, right. because I think mm-hmm. that that just at a certain point it becomes a conversational gambit. It's like. Look, I'm the one being rational here. You're being emotional, or you know, the the popular right, thing right, in the last few years right. is you're just virtue signaling, like which yeah. is has turned into this like 
telling someone that they're virtue signaling has turned into a form of virtue signaling to yeah, right. people who value <laughs> rationality. And so it's like this double right. secret I- irony right. and, and, you know, and, and yeah, but no, I, I mean, I think Ellen, like the, you know, your point is like people, people should under, in some situations try to be rational, right? Like there are, you know, I mean, this, this is what I like, I, I struggle with is like, I, I, when do I maximize and when do I satisfy? Right? Yeah. Like, so there are some decisions that like, you know, like if I'm going to buy a house, I should like slow down and, and think carefully mm-hmm. and do the research and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, like I, I, I do, I spend way too much time like, you know, buying, you know, like a $12 adapter for my iPhone and I'll sit there on Amazon yeah. reading reviews and Googling <laughs> for whatever. And it's just like, just drop the 12 bucks and if it doesn't work, return it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, yeah. and and so, yeah, I think in that sense, but, it, you know, so I don't know that I would say I pride, but sometimes I feel <laughs> like I'm ashamed of how rational you are. <laughs> in, in that sense. So, so there I do need yeah, to Yeah, or, or it, it becomes... Oh, I, I do need to defend the eco models or the mod- the models in general a little bit. Where, like you, the models are not necessarily looking at whether you're optimal or uh, suboptimal, and they can take into account like how much effort, or how much cognitive effort it takes. Uh, the main thing they're looking at is whether you're inconsistent. So if you're saying, "Hey, I'm wi- I'm willing to wait forty minutes in line for ice cream," you should also be wi- willing to wait thirty five minutes in line for ice cream, and it's. Like within, I would say decision making, it's those kind of violations that people would be like, "Hey, that's irrational. like non-normative or maybe irrational." Not necessarily, you know, that you take cost into account or that emotions do things change your behavior. So, my my takeaway from this conversation is that Ellen wishes she was eating ice cream instead of talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I can combine the two. Yeah. <laughs> no, but like I want to defend it a little bit because some people, some people like to argue that anything that is you know like not robotic is seen as irrational and i think that's too simple of a definition right yeah yeah no i yeah i'm glad you said that because i I do think like i think i think psychology you know there's a little like friendly rivalry between Mm -hmm. psychology and economics and sometimes we like to beat up on economists or or sort of JDM models derived from economics uh, of rationality and and no i'm i'm glad you said that um so I wanted to ask about something a little bit different, which which we talked about a little bit already, which is sort of meta science stuff. Um, I actually I, I was I found it really interesting, and I I didn't know this coming into this conversation about you that you, you were sort of like, you know, when when you were commenting about SIPs, because um, I think you know you you wrote a paper with Daniel Lockins about uh, evaluating evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you worked with with Yuri and Joe in your postdoc, and and now you're in a business school department. Uh, I don't know the marketing department specifically, but you're at a business school that I tend to think of as uh, having, I don't know what the overall atmosphere is, but when I think of people like Don Moore mm-hmm. or Leif Nelson yep. um, or Dana Carney, who are, who are sort of um, working on improving methods and practices and, and, and that sort of thing. Like, So you've been around a lot of people, but like working with people and writing papers with people. Um, and But you, you kind of said like, you're not interested in as much in meta science as like a research topic, mm-hmm. but more it's like some something that you use. And and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about like in your own work how you see it factoring in, but also sort of in marketing research and and in JDM research and that kind of thing. Like where where is the conversation at, and do you see it different in different parts of that? Like maybe the JDM people are in a different place than the the marketing people or something. So um, yeah, so in in general, 
I just really care about it because I want to do true stuff. That's the short <laughs> version. Um, and like I've run into a lot of issues where, you know, when I started out in grad school, I read a ton of papers on a certain topic. Like I found some conflicting evidence. I thought I had a super brilliant insight that could like fix whatever seemed inconsistent. So after three months of reading, I had this great idea and I tried to like test my moderator and I never managed to replicate the basic effect in the first place, um, which got me really, really frustrated, but also really like interested in this. So it is a topic I really care about because I want to work in a field where I can rely on the data I get from other people. So I can also do the best work myself. Um, so I think that's why I really care about it. Um, I think JDM is generally really good at it. Um, maybe that's also what appealed me to that field because we just use really, really simple designs. We do two cell designs where people make a choice. Like there is not that much room to be hack. Like if you want to do it, you can, but it will also be somewhat more noticeable than in classic social psych, mm -hmm. I would say, because if all of a sudden you include all these scales as covariates and that's not the norm, mm -hmm. then, you know, people will start asking questions. Um, I do think that, or I do remember Uli Shima using his method to rank all the journals, but it's this method that nobody exactly knows where he got the values from. Uh, and if I remember correctly, JDM, the online journal, was ranked number one at like best evidence. So um, based on that, I would like to say that JDM is in a pretty good spot. Not in a perfect spot, but you know, like, I think we probably suffer a little bit less from like hacking and QRPs than the average other psych-related field. Um, well, and and mm -hmm. just to jump in quickly, that, that to heap more praise, J JDM, the journal, is it's op been open access and had a pretty progressive open data policy mm -hmm. for a, a long time, if I remember right. Yeah. It was kind of like doing that stuff before it was kind of being talked about mm -hmm. as widely. Yeah, and it's open access without you having mm -hmm. to pay $5,000 to publish your paper, so... Like it's pretty awesome. Uh, sorry, it, uh, no, I don't think it's five thousand, but I know the other journals ask for quite a bit of money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think it got started well, by John Barron at University of Pennsylvania, and he is kind of a machine who just like manages to organize stuff really, really well. Um, and I think he's actually the guy who does almost everything um, and does it very well. Uh, but also maybe because he does everything, uh, he also can basically impose his own preferences on like the requirements of the journal. That's a sounds like a great model. What? <laughs> it's a benevolent dictatorship. Yeah. <laughs> I would like a gig like that. Right. <laughs> you want to squeeze in one last question, Sandra? Okay. Uh, oh, well, it's not a very interesting <laughs> question, Anon. I was, I was going to ask, what about um, what about marketing as a... As that's a, a more interesting question than you think. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a very interesting question, but I maybe we'll leave it with my previous answer where I say that some fields are generally a little bit better than other fields. Um, I, I think marketing is having the exact same issues as social psych, but also like a lot of... Um, especially younger people trying to do better. Um, so it also seems to go be going through the same developments as psych, um, which makes me optimistic. Cool. Well, that Thanks that seems so like a great yeah, job to end nice. on. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for, for doing yeah, this. Thank you, it's really fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry for the bad Wi-Fi. Oh, no, <laughs> this, I, it, was, it was absolutely worth it. Thank you so much. Ellen Avers uh, from 
Haas School of Business at University of California, Berkeley. Thanks for joining us. And uh, to our listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.